You're listening to Denver Orbit. Special bonus episode. Year in review. And welcome to Denver Orbit, an audio magazine featuring voices, stories, and music from Colorado's creative community. I'm Josh Madison, and for some reason, I'm all by myself today. Also, although this may bear the trappings of a normal episode, it isn't one. This is actually a special bonus year in review episode. And so, just to be clear up front, there is nothing new in this podcast, except the things I'm saying right now. And technically, I suppose it's a six-months review episode, but there's no reason to be pedantic here. If this were an NPR podcast, this would be the point where I would ask you for money, but it's not, so I won't. Instead, I would like to ask your help with something else. We would love this show to grow more and more in the next year, and we can't do that without your help. So if you're enjoying the show, tell a friend or two, or even ten. Maybe sit down with someone and describe the show in excruciating detail to them. Or, you know, just point them to this episode instead. Another thing you can do is rate and review the show in iTunes or whatever app you use to listen to it. It's one of the best ways to raise the profile of the show. And you get the satisfaction of liking the show before we sell out, which we fully intend to. Finally, are you a creative person with an interesting story or some kind of strange interest or hobby or maybe you're a writer or a poet or a musician or you have a comedy bit or some kind of personal essay? Drop us a line at denverorbit at gmail.com and let us know about it. Our growth as a show isn't just about getting more listeners, but it's also about growing as a community. The more people listen, the more people contribute, and so on. I should also mention that this isn't really a best of episode. It's just a way to showcase the types of stories and songs that we like. It's also a good way to introduce people to the show and get a general idea of what we're doing here at Denver Orbit headquarters. Now let's get started. I'd like to go back to the very first feature in the very first episode for this one. This is my former employer and friend, Paul Epstein, with his story, The Emotional Wallet. Hey, this is Paul Epstein. I own a record store called Twist and Shout. I've been in the music business for almost 30 years, and in that time I've bought a lot of used records. Inside many of these used records, I have found a number of items, and there are items ranging from the most personal, private things you can imagine to large amounts of cash, drugs, photographs, private notes, all kinds of things. Uh, Early on in my career, I started saving these items and putting them in a file called Found, and here... 30 years later, I've started to amass these into some kind of order that makes sense to me. So in this podcast, I'm going to tell you about some of the items. I'm going to call it the emotional wallet. That's what records were to my generation of listeners and uh, the generation preceding me and probably the generation after. To people of my generation, when you bought a record and put something in it, the expectation was that this was going to be there forever with you for the rest of your life. 
records were such an important and emotional and personal part of our self-identity that it seemed like anything you put there would always be there. It was a wallet for your emotional needs. I, I say this because over the years as I've found items that have fallen out of records, I've recognized that these were things that you would never in your normal day-to-day -day life want anyone else to see. They're very personal things. So the expectation was, I'll never not have Cat Stevens' T for the Tillerman album. I'll always have this exact album in my life so I can put things in there that will always be there and thus readily accessible to me. As we know, time changes adults and your priorities change. And as we also know, technology has changed. And therefore, there is an entire generation of secrets hidden away in records. As these records are sold, they start to come out and the secrets are then revealed to people like me who are lucky enough to see them. I'm gonna tell you about uh, a recent purchase. This happened just in the last year. And in this purchase, a, a gentleman, uh, middle-aged, I would say in his uh, late 40s to early 50s, came in with two boxes of records. And he was, uh, I would say, he, he looked like kind of a surfer dude. He, he looked like um, maybe an elderly manager of a Ron John surf shop or something like that, you know. Uh, he had been probably at it too long, and but he had like feathered blonde hair, a la 1979. He had a white puka shell necklace and a Hawaiian shirt, uh, and uh, you know a moderate tan. But he also was uh, slightly portly, so he was past his prime. But he looked like he had at one time taken a great deal of pride in his youthful vigor and manliness. So I start going through his records and he starts looking around the store. As I go through them, as often happens, items start revealing themselves to me from inside these records. Various notes and uh, drawings and things that he had. But inside one record, uh, particularly, and I believe it was uh, Elton John, uh, Don't Shoot Me, I'm Only the Piano Player, falls out a Polaroid. And in this Polaroid is a young man, I would say he is 17 or 18, no more than 20, just out of high school or just into college. And he is in repose in a bedroom. And the bedroom is, let me back up and tell you, when you start finding these items, you become a detective and you start looking at them and trying to determine what year it was, what the circumstances were, and all that. And so I, as this, when this picture presented itself to me, I started being a detective with this emotional wallet. And I started looking at it and there was the, the room he's lying in is uh, wood paneling a la the mid-70s. You, never see it anymore. And on the wall is a poster for the rock band Renaissance and their album Azure D'Or, which came out in 1979. So I am placing this photo to the late 70s 
to early 80s, 79 or 80. And this young man uh, is lying on this bed. And did I mention he's not wearing any clothes? Uh, in addition to this, he has very, very skillfully moved the blanket to where it is obscuring just enough of his private area that this is not an X-rated picture. It's a hard R or a soft R in this case. Either way, it's a very thoughtful picture. He's in a kind of come-hither pose, lying back on this bed, and you can see quite a bit, but not everything. It's a Polaroid, so obviously somebody took this picture of him. I'm wondering, was this a girlfriend slash boyfriend who was getting ready to go off to college and needed a visual reminder of what they'd be missing? Was this him saying, take a picture of me so I can have a record of how amazingly great I look at this period in my life? It's hard to know. As often with these situations, more questions are given than answers. But it's a fascinating one. So I can continue going through the gentleman's records. I come up with a stack of things I'm going to buy. I should also mention I had spirited the picture away. Whether I'm going to get this record collection or not doesn't matter. I'm getting this picture because this is part of my detective work, and it's going to go in my found folder. It's part of the theory of the emotional wallet, records where you put things that you would never expect anyone else to ever see. And then he comes back to the counter, and I tell him, and he says, okay, fine. Suddenly it hits me. This is the guy. This is 27 or 8 years later, the same chap who's now a middle-aged dude who looks also kind of similar, but not near, you know. So many things were brought up by this. The passage of time, aging, ego, death of beauty, uh, the death of intimacy, all, all sorts of questions come to mind, and it goes from being, you may think you look at him and have kind of a snicker. It's not that at all. It becomes an incredibly poignant moment when you're looking at someone in two phases of their life based around one thing, which is music and records, and how their life has sort of revolved around it or has stopped revolving around it, and they've given up on the emotional wallet and forgotten what they left in it. And here he is selling it. And here I am looking at it and pondering the gaping maw of the universe and the passage of time. And that's what it's like working in a record store. This has been Paul Epstein. Thanks for joining me. the owner of Twist and Shout Records in Denver. Most days you can find him there behind the counter buying old records. And you can also find more of his writing at Twist and Shout's blog, The Twisted Spork. Now, I've known Mary McHugh for a long time. First we were drinking buddies, then we were in a band together. Now we're just grown-up friends. So when I started this whole thing, I knew she would have something interesting going on. And on that note, 
Here's some advice from Mary McHugh. Chinese. Of course, orange chicken sounded really good. After dinner, our check came with the usual fortune cookies wrapped in cellophane. I held them up and asked my husband to choose his fortune. He picked his cookie, and his fortune was something about having success in life and business. We laughed because that's not really a thing. As he munched away, I opened mine up, and my cookie was empty. I couldn't believe it. I'm terrified this means my time is up, my future is without fortune, and my days are numbered. What should I do? Should I have asked for another cookie? I'm left feeling empty and adrift. Please help, fortuneless cookie. Dear cookie, this has never happened to me, but I can imagine how you must feel. I myself don't know how to behave without having read my weekly horoscope. I mean, what if I set important boundaries with a coworker when I should be reaching out to an unlikely ally? The result could be catastrophic. So I do sympathize with your missed fortune, and I'm here to help. I have, in the past, put a great deal of stock into the fortunes of cookies, like buying a cute fuzzy gremlin from a basement shop in Chinatown, or using ancient Chinese secrets to get stains out of laundry. Fortune cookies hold the mystique of a grand and venerable culture. But believe it or not, and I was pretty devastated when I learned this, those things are Western constructions. The truth is, we know very little about what actually goes on in China. I remember the day I watched Iron Man 3 and learned from the Mandarin that fortune cookies are an American invention. I was floored. Turns out the flavorless pockets of hope are baked in factories as a gimmick. As if the mundane origin of the bogus baked goods isn't demystifying enough, the fortunes that go inside aren't even written by professional psychics. It turns out they're just churned out by interns from California State University's marketing program, and they're all copying each other's answers. So even though my initial gut reaction was to agree with you that all is lost and suggest you give up on life utterly and completely, the truth is an empty fortune cookie is a tabula rasa, an opportunity to create your own destiny. So my advice is to avoid all the hocus pocus and snake oil of the American fortune cookie industry and stick to something reliable, factual, and scientific. For example, Western astrology is based on astronomy, and Chinese astrology is really old. So those are both great places to start. In the meantime, you can't be too lost, little puppy, because you wrote to me. That was very fortunate. Yours, Maryuary. Mary McHugh can be found at flaneurordandy.com and also on Twitter at MaryUary. Up next is a song from my friend Adam Baumeister, who you can hear an interview with in episode 6. This is his band Little's Paya with the song I Don't Know.
You can find Little's Paya on SoundCloud, Spotify, and iTunes. And check out more from Adam at Meep Records, online at meeprecords.com. History is always a little murky, especially the history of marginalized populations. David Duffield stopped by to help shine a light on some of Denver's history in this next story. This story we're about to tell uh, begins on a dark night in spring of 1978. A young man named Lawrence Subia, who is a month on the job as a vice squad officer, decides to pick up a uh, young woman named Anthony Irene DeSoto. Subia was uh, working as an undercover, which probably meant plain clothes vice squad officer. What Subia doesn't realize is that DeSoto is not simply doing sex work, but is actually a uh, biological male. After attempting to arrest her for solicitation of sex, according to Subia's captain, the person in question in this case, Irene DeSoto, got out a pair of scissors and apparently tried to slash Subia and then ran from the car and down an alley. So my name is David Duffield. I'm the creator and coordinator of the Colorado LGBT History Project, which is part of the GLBT Center of Colorado. I'm a graduate student at UC Denver. I'm trained as a teacher, a Denver native. So Irene was probably a person of Latino descent, according to the newspapers, and I'll use the pronoun she because that's how she gendered herself, and how her friends referred to her. She came from San Francisco. She was about 34 years old. She had migrated around, and like half of the gay youth who were doing sex work, she came from out of town. At the age of 34, she may have been doing sex work for close to 15 years from about the age of 19 on. She was uh, described as a happy person by her friends. She was known to frequent bars, and she was known by people around town. Irene DeSoto lived with her roommate at 1333 Pennsylvania Street. It was a building described by the newspapers as mostly seniors and some single people who noted that uh, DeSoto would come and go at all hours of the night. Irene was probably doing sex work, and she may or may not have been bringing people back to and from the apartment. Whatever the case was, she lived there and um, worked nearby. Here's Irene DeSoto, a 34-year-old male, a transvestite, a, a sex worker, and here's a young undercover cop, Lawrence Subia. Presumably Subia, he gets DeSoto to ask him if, if he'd like to have sex. After some debate or what would appear to be conflicting accounts, Irene runs and she ends up in this guy's yard named Hamburger. George Hamburger ends up reporting that he hears a scuffle, he hears an argument, and then he hears a shot fired. So whatever accounts that come afterwards, we can understand that at the very least they were talking when they were in the yard. The police report later on showed that Subia's gun had gone off by accident and that um, DeSoto had resisted arrest and fled an officer, which may or may not have been cause. But in the newspaper, she was painted as a transient and as a, a sex worker and as a transvestite, all negative words, which might have biased the judgment against her. So after, after DeSoto was killed, the newspapers recorded that Subia said that she, he thought she was a, quote, real woman, and that neighbors uh, heard men coming and going from her apartment all night. Whatever the case, the newspapers paint the death of this person as the death of a transient sex worker at the hands of a young cop, which has elements of truth in it. 
But when we look at how the response was um, later on, we find that there are different and conflicting stories. In the 1970s, we were living post-Stonewall, which was the match of gay activism that lit a thousand fires of activism across the country. Thousands of people across the country, students, young people, old people, were beginning to organize and protest nearly three generations of police repression. In the 1960s in Denver, one could be arrested and, and raids on gay bars were really, really common. In cities across the United States, the feeling was that the gay community was a detested minority full of psychopaths and child molesters. Queer people across the country put up with this and had riots, not simply at Stonewall, but decades before at uh, the Black Cat Bar in San Francisco or at Compton's Cafeteria, which was a transgender riot against police harassment. These decades-long rebellions, in a way, built up to what Stonewall would become. In Denver's case, we had only begun the journey towards gay liberation, gay activism a few years before with the Gay Coalition of Denver and what, what eventually became known as the Denver Gay Revolt in 1973, which was the first time in the nation that a group of over 300 queer people had met with their city council and gotten five anti-gay laws overturned. So if we imagine a picture of the United States in our head, we have to see people all across the country in large cities, uh, queer people, women, minorities pushing for civil rights, and this is just post the African-American civil rights movement and at the height of the gay liberation women's movements. What we see are queer people advocating for non-discrimination policies, and in Dade County, Florida, they had managed to get one of those passed by the city, which today there are hundreds of. A woman named Anita Bryant decided to wage a national campaign to fight back against that act of self-determination on the part of GLBT people. Anita Bryant is a former Miss Oklahoma, a pop singer with three gold records to her credit. Until just lately, she's been identified with nothing more controversial than orange juice. Well, today she's at the center of a human rights controversy raging in Dade County, Florida, where earlier this year the county commission made it illegal to discriminate against homosexuals in hiring and in housing. Ms. Bryant is leading a counterattack. Extremely religious, she says she feels that God is single. She became really despised, naturally, by gay people and started to turn around the advances for anti-discrimination protections in these campaigns. And the first victory was in Miami-Dade County in Florida. In response to this locally, a group of 10 gay men got together and decided to form a collective known as the June 7th Committee. Um, and t I believe it's in response to the overturning of the Dade County Ordinance on June 7th of 1977. The very first thing the June 7th committee decided to do was to investigate the death of Eugene Levi. A year before, a young black transvestite sex worker named Eugene Levi, who was only 24, was killed near 20th and Welton after a scuffle with a, another uh, vice squad officer named O'Hare. According to the newspapers at the time, O'Hare had asked Levi to, to get into his car and then asked him if he wanted to perform a sex act and then turned around and tried to arrest him for solicitation of sex. According to the newspapers and later police accounts, Levi tried to flee the car and so O'Hare tried to apparently pistol whip, according to the June 7th committee's questions, uh, Levi into submission, and the gun went off, killing Levi. 
The death of one person was probably not enough to spur people to action, but the death of a, of a more well-known um, community member may have been. Whatever we know about Eugene Levi, we know that he died, and we also know that he died at the hands of a police officer, and we also know that that police officer was exonerated of any wrongdoing, and that the story of how he, he died, an accidental gun going off, raises a lot of questions today as it did for um, the GLBT community then. And so they issued a critical report of the slaying and how the DA was handling it. In one of those, the questions raised in that report was why an arrest suspect was pistol whipped by a police officer, as well as why the officer uh, was exonerated of any wrongdoing. At the end of it, the June 7th committee raised a lot of questions about police harassment. The June 7th committee said, and I quote, we refuse to have our right to live taken away so fantastically. We are not inhuman, we are human beings. In the wake of DeSoto's death, there were more questions raised. Here's the second person uh, killed by Denver police and the police officer is exonerated. And while the DA did open up an investigation, they found no wrongdoing in this case. A group of young people got together and decided to protest. Members of the June 7th committee, members of the Denver Socialists, members of different interest groups, women's liberationists, queer people decided to march and deliver a petition to city council. People known to me only as Monique and Missy organized the Transsexual, Lesbian, and Gay Defense Coalition. They presented the Denver City Council with a position requesting civilian oversight of police and organizing a march to police the police harassment. There were dozens of people. Missy and Monique decided to go in face, which meant in drag. These were biological men who were gendering themselves in public in daylight in the spring of 1978 as women. And one didn't do that in the daylight, one didn't do that in public, and one didn't certainly do that at the front of a protest. With these dozens of people behind them, they walked around Capitol Hill and down to Denver Police Headquarters and talked about police harassment. The interesting thing here is the symbolism behind the activism and the nature of the people marching. At a time when, for lack of a better word, the boys and girls of the GLBT community were fighting with each other because men were dealing with misogyny and women were having to literally fight for their equality, political activism and political change were really hard to achieve. Not only was there a lot of infighting for a nascent political gay community, there was a lot of misunderstanding and a lot of coming to understand from the various communities. One person once told me that there was the boys and there was the girls and no one in between. For the boys and the girls to come together, not just with the Denver Socialists or the Women's Rights Coalition, but also for the leaders of this march to be men who are gendering themselves as women is pretty spectacular. Where we had two lives taken, accidentally or no, for the fact that they were doing sex work, probably because of that was the only form of work they could get or were forced to do, and then for the fact that they weren't real women, is pretty substantial. For a hundred years before this, it was illegal for men and women to cross-dress from 1886 on. And Denver and most other urban cities had always had a problem with the people who didn't, quote, fit in in public spaces. We were always happy to ignore those who didn't fit in until 
their problems became the problems that we experienced in our personal spaces. So when you see two people in face doing activism and a multicultural, multi-alliance, multi-sexual, multi-gender group of people behind them saying this is wrong and we have to stop it, even if it's only a small group, that begets many thousands more. This protest may not have had an immediate effect, but it drew attention, and it was a number of many, many different kinds of protests that the queer community had to engage in before they ended up having one united political front. Police harassment of not just transgender people or queer people only end, ended and continues to end and continues to be a struggle when groups of people come from behind them and say, this is wrong. These are human beings too. They deserve to be treated with justice, but more importantly, their lives matter, particularly people of color, as Eugene Levi is, is an example. If people see gender non-binary people as an other, you know, or they see gender non-conforming in public spaces as odd, let's rethink that for a moment. Let's think of someone's gender expression as a very personal matter, but also an expression of power because we take power away from people who don't conform to a gender binary by judging and scrutinizing them. If we see gender illusion, we should celebrate it. We should celebrate it as an act of liberation in the same way that Missy and Monique did 40 years ago. And that to reclaim public spaces from gender binary, we have to perform gender illusion, or we have to just be who we are. And we have to respect the fact that there's a gender plurality instead of a gender binary. Eugene Levi was 24, never got the chance to live a full life. And Irene DeSoto had built a community for herself, had friends. And that's probably one of the main reasons people came out in force. We have to look at the murder of these folks and we have to ask what's wrong. Not simply for police harassment, but we have to look at the policies and circumstances around it. And we have to ask if that's changed. The Colorado Anti-Violence Project has dozens of documented cases like this. And it's not simply that we're not paying attention, but that we continue to condemn the people whose lives are taken. Je crois que je t'aime, je ne sais plus Pourquoi me t'aime, je ne sais plus Je crois que je t'aime
David Duffield is the history coordinator for the GLBT Center of Colorado. He helped co-found the Colorado LGBT Project along with the GLBT Center in 2014. To find out more, please contact history at glbtcolorado.org. Our last story comes to us from Denver writer Hilary Powelka. It's called Making Up for Lost Opportunities. Andrea Sanchez was nice enough to read it for us. And here it is. When I lived in my last apartment, there was a girl who rode my bus most mornings on the way to work. She was not beautiful, but pretty. There was nothing particularly striking about her, but her features were arranged pleasantly enough. She had mouse brown hair that she wore in a smooth bob. Sometimes during the summer it would be wet, so I assumed she was running late on those days. She always chose the seat right in front of me, so I wouldn't care to speculate on the number of hours I spent looking at the back of her head. Her neck, her shoulders. Her skin was very pale and impossibly smooth. She always wore a sleeveless top, a skirt, and knee-high boots. If it was cold, she would wear a large, long puffer coat. But she would always take it off as soon as she sat down. She carried a paper fan with her, the kind that unfolds to reveal a scene of cherry blossoms or geisha, not unlike the one I had as a child and was peculiarly obsessed with. On hot days, she would use it to fan herself, even with the bus's air conditioning blasting full bore. I decided that her sleeveless tops, her aversion to that coat, and her incessant fanning were the result of not wearing deodorant. At first, I mused that perhaps she was sort of hippie who eschewed the chemicals and antiperspirants. But then I remembered that they make natural deodorants, so I decided that wasn't the reason. The alternative that I landed on was that she had a daddy, or a dom, or whatever the appropriate nomenclature for that lifestyle. I began to spin a narrative about this woman in my mind, filling the long minutes of my commute with fanciful explanations for my observations. I imagined that she lived alone in one of the townhomes at the end of the street, that she worked for a law or architectural firm in an administrative or clerical capacity. She didn't make much money, but the rent on the townhome was taken care of by her companion. He wanted her available to him as often as possible. He had his own set of keys made, and while he tried to be respectful of her schedule, he would often come over on a whim. He liked her legs, so he wanted her always in skirts he also loved the look of her legs encased in leather, so he bought her a wardrobe of expensive, high-quality boots. He could abide neither the artificial smell of hair product nor the fussy styles that necessitated it, so he insisted that she keep her hair healthy and simple, in a style that she could just wash, blow, dry, and go. He didn't like a lot of makeup either, and he thought that she was pretty enough that all she needed was a little mascara and some tinted lip gloss. His favorite thing about her was her skin. He would spend hours when they were together, licking her from head to toe and back again, bathing her body with his tongue. For this reason, she never wore deodorant, scented body lotion, or heavy perfumes. I heard her on the phone just once in all those many months of riding the bus behind her. She was speaking to her mother about moving. She sounded anxious about it, so I decided that her agreement with her benefactor had come to or was approaching its end. I can't remember the last day I saw her what she was wearing or how she smelled, only that after an unmeasured period of time, I never saw her again. 
I have to wonder if this little yarn I spun wasn't a direct result of my then recent recollection of an opportunity I once had to be, shall we say, kept for a time by an older, wealthy man. If it seems laughable to imagine now, back then it was downright terrifying. I was rather attractive when I was young and softer in many ways. Sweeter, more amenable and eager to please. I was inexperienced in every way a person can be and still malleable, but with absolutely no knowledge of how practical and mutually enriching those sorts of arrangements can be. So it never came to pass, and I'd be lying if I said I didn't regret that from time to time. What's that line? It's better to regret something you've done than something you never did. Lord, ain't that the truth. For more of Hillary's stories, check out belladonnanorton.wordpress.com. And you can find Andrea Sanchez's photography and paintings on Instagram at DreaAnn. And if you want to find more Denver Orbit on the old internets, check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Denver Orbit. And we are over at Instagram at Denver Orbit. And that's going to do it for this year in review episode. We will have a brand new show for you in less than two weeks, somewhere on or around January 10th. This episode of Denver Orbit was produced and edited by me, Josh Madison. Ryan Connell will be back for a little while anyway in the next episode.